Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. I'm Alan Montecilio, in for Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. At the end of each month, I get an email in my inbox that fills me with trepidation. It has the same subject line. Your PG&E energy statement is ready to view. Every time I open it, I just hope it isn't too bad. Because Californians already pay some of the highest utility bills in the nation. And starting in January, your PG&E bill is going to increase again. This is a several billion dollar rate increase. So this is really pretty expensive. Today, I speak with KQED senior climate editor Kevin Stark about why our energy bills are going to get more expensive and what PG&E wants to do with that money. Kevin, why is this happening and how did we get here? What PG&E just did is they just resolved what's called their rate case. Every few years, the utility has to go before state regulators and make a case for their spending priorities, what they'll charge customers, what they'll do, the stuff that they'll build. And this particular plan has a really big project inside of it. What this plan will do is actually allow them to bury more than a thousand miles of power lines underground, especially in the most risky wildfire prone parts of the state, insulate a bunch of other power lines. It will allow them to do other mitigation work, invest in clean energy and a whole range of other things. But what I've been reporting on and what the big focus of this proposal has been is the wildfire mitigation stuff. It's part of the story of PG&E over the last few years that their equipment is outdated, They have not maintained it well. They have been involved in some incredibly tragic incidents. The campfire was touched off by PG&E equipment. We have have the Dixie Fire, the Zog Fire. I mean, kind of the list goes on. And the state has really been pushing them to deal with this, to update their equipment. And one of the things that they've asked them to do is to bury power lines. So this increase in all of our utility bills, that money is meant to go to upgrades, basically, to make sure that another campfire doesn't happen again. Yeah, in new places. So this is not going to fix some of the areas that I was just talking about. This is like new construction that that needs to happen. So I know this was finalized at a California Public Utilities Commission meeting, which PG&E attended. Uh, What was that meeting like? And what were people there to discuss? There was tons of meetings for this. Right. Uh, so we'll talk about it. I'll talk about How naive of me to think there was just one meeting about <laughs> you, it. Right, you, right. You really, yeah, to get through this, this was like, you know, years of debate. Leading up to this, there was a hearing where they really like rubber to the road were debating the details of this plan. 
Good morning. I am Carla Peterman, Executive Vice President, Corporate Affairs for PG&E Corporation. You know, PG&E had put forward its proposal, which was to bury 2,000 miles of power lines to push that onto ratepayers. That would have been a average rate increase of about forty dollars. So they wanted a bigger plan. They wanted a bigger, bigger plan. And PG&E has a profit incentive here. Like the way that utilities make money is by doing capital projects. They had a very capital intensive plan. Uh, So they came to the CPUC and made their case. And the uh, state officials really balked at the plan for a couple of reasons. The cost is incredibly expensive. And also the scale of what they were proposing is not something the utility has a track record of ever completing. And John Reynolds, who is one of the commissioners, made that pointed and clear. I'll I'll offer that I think it's uncontroverted here that PG&E has never delivered this scale of undergrounding that you've proposed here. I have concerns that a PG&E failure to meet the plans as you've proposed them will result in customers paying for work that doesn't get done. PG&E had this really pointed back and forth, and Carla Peterman was one of the executives at PG&E who was there, and she made the case that, that basically the utility has been doubling, even tripling the amount of work that it's done undergrounding lines over the last few years, that it's really figuring it out and that um, they can get this done. This is also an area where we have applied the best of the best in terms of our work management tools. We have a command center focused on undergrounding. We are tracking every day our progress, understanding where the bottlenecks are. So we are approaching this work differently, and that is a part of our strategy. And then on top of that, there is just all the other public comment, people coming out of the woodwork criticizing the utility, uh, advocates really pushing back on the cost um, and saying that, you know, this should really be the responsibility of the utility, not of its ratepayers. I already reduced my electricity. I don't turn lights on at night. I sit in the dark. I don't watch TV. I have not lit the pilot light on my gas stove because I can't afford it. People are upset, and they're angry, and they don't trust the utility. They don't feel like they should be paying for this work. They have incinerated communities, killed people, already raised rates multiple times. And for you to consider that again is really, really uh, turning your back on already struggling ratepayers in California. Please vote against PG&E's desired exorbitant rate increase and restore rates that are in line with the cost of living. And then you can read all the comments online, like they're, uh, uh, I don't even know how to put it, the incredibly colorful language used to describe the utility and to criticize it on on this stuff. A lot of anger. Yes, a lot of anger. What does all of that lead to? So the end result of the negotiations basically were, instead of PG&E ratepayers paying to underground 2,000 miles of power lines, they're going to underground about 1,200 and then about 800 in which they're going to insulate the lines, basically put protective covers on them. That and all of the other facets of this rate case are going to equal in- an increase on people's utility bills of about $30 a month, the average utility bill. And it could have been more, right? It would have been up above 40 Coming up, whether there's a better way to pay for PG&E's plan to reduce the risk of wildfires. Stay with us.
Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. So we've been talking about this plan, having ratepayers, all of us, fund these improvements to PG&E's equipment. It seems like that's basically the norm for how we pay for this stuff. Are there other ways to, to fund this, though? Absolutely. Just because it's the norm does not mean that's the only way. So there's sort of three ways that it could get paid for. There's what's happening, asking ratepayers to foot the bill. And this is how utilities operate, most utilities in the country, because they're rate heavily regulated and they're monopolies. The other avenues would be that the shareholders that invest in the private company foot the bill. The third option would be that the money would come from the state or from basically public infrastructure investment. The shareholders would cover issues in which the utility has messed up. But what we're talking about is new construction. So like really the most common way for this to happen is through pushing it on to ratepayers. I think we need to recognize that those are costs that society has to bear. There's an argument, and Severin Bornstein, who's at UC Berkeley, made this case pretty well, that it's more equitable to have this done through the state budget. The problem is that when we put it onto utility bills, uh, it is disproportionately paid by low- and middle-income households. It is much more regressive than paying for it through the state budget, which is primarily financed through income taxes and a bit by sales taxes. If you're paying for it through taxes, there's just a lot of other ways in which the government can either offset the costs, the earned income tax credit, it can mean that that low-income families don't bear the burden. We are choosing not to do that and say, no, that has to be paid for by ratepayers. I think that's a glaring difference. And I think it's pretty clearly coming from the fact that legislators know that if they don't pay for this, they can put it on to utility bills. Are there any ways that the state could either subsidize the cost for lower-income families or just pay for this in a different way? State Senator Josh Becker is proposing that exact thing, which would be to move this outside of ratepayer increases and make this a publicly funded investment. If you want to look at the politics of it, here's where it gets a little tricky. It's not hard to see how people could see that as a bailout of PG&E. But there is a lot of money coming from the federal government and the state already to do infrastructure upgrades. And if this is something that needs to happen, then there's an argument that that it should happen through public investment. Yes. I guess the other part of this is I want to believe that this extra money that we're all going to pay is going to lead to on-time construction of these projects. Do we have any indication of whether that's going to happen? You know, the, it's such a great question. This stuff is really, really, really hard to do. There is, I reported in, is up in the Berkeley Hills, where there are people who have been pushing for literally decades, decades, to get two miles of power lines underground. And 
what PG&E is talking about in this plan is 2,000 miles. What they want to do over the next 10 years is 10,000 miles. So I think the bottom line is just this is really complicated, difficult to do, and PG&E does not have a great track record of doing that. I feel like PG&E wasn't in the headlines that much this year, and, and wildfires weren't in the news as much. I, I think we, you know, we had a pretty good fire season. That said, what do you think this story says about where we are right now, where we're headed with PG&E? And this is a big part of our lives. Wildfires, PG&E, climate change. The risk dial has gotten turned way up. And I think we maybe don't feel that quite as much right now because, as you said, this was a pretty gentle wildfire season, all things considered. Last year was also comparatively not, there was some some big and devastating fires, but it was not 2020, 2019. No orange sky. No orange sky. But that doesn't mean that that risk has gone away. And I think maybe that if there's a big lesson here, it's that we just, we're running out of space to make mistakes. That leaves us moving forward with trying to figure out how to dial the risk down through mitigation, through reducing emissions, through uh, hardening our systems. Just to put this onto PG&E, like I think the utility is really scrambling to fix a culture, to uh, make up for some of the things that it's done, and to try and prevent the next big, huge mega fire. No one wants that. They don't want that. And then who should pay the cost of that? Who should pay the cost? It's a huge question. Well, Kevin, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That was Kevin Stark, Senior Climate Editor for KQED. This episode was cut down and edited by me, Alan Montecilio. Maria Esquinka scored it and added all the tape. The Bay is a production of member-supported KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Alan Montecilio, in for Erica Cruz-Guevara, and thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-hosts cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.